appointment in just a little while when we get to our next service. There's so many people out sick and or just unable to get here because of the weather. So we pray there. Remember all of them. So many needs among us. How many brought your Bibles? Last week, last Sunday morning, we started Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12. The reason I'm letting you sit down is we're going to go right back to that same passage of Scripture. And uh, we are going to tackle one more thing, two more things out of there, one of them today. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12 says, And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Threefold cord is not quickly broken. Last week we talked about uh, one of those cords. We talked about the necessity of receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost, which is absolutely vital to salvation. Today we want to talk about one more cord. We want to talk about the oneness of Jesus Christ. So we uh, can add one more cord, and that will put two cords together, and there will be a third one uh, probably next week. If you're going to talk about the oneness of Jesus Christ, though, the easiest and the best place to always start is in the book of John. Uh, John is, is incredible. It's the book of John is unique among all the other gospels. Because Matthew shows that the Jew shows to the Jews that Jesus is their Messiah. Mark shows the Romans that Jesus is a suffering servant. Luke shows the Greeks that Jesus is the perfect man. Matthew starts with the genealogy. Mark and Luke begin the ministry of John the Baptist. But John, writing 60 years after the birth of the New Testament church, starts completely different than any other gospel you see. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. It would culminate all of that together in John chapter 1, verse 14, when he would write, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. From the opening sentence, John is on a mission to prove that Jesus Christ is exactly who he says he is. He is the true and only God in a body of flesh. 90% of John's gospel is completely unique to John alone. There are no parables in the book of John, unlike the other gospels. John is selective, in fact, very selective about the miracles that he records in his gospel. Some of the miracles he records are completely unique only to him. Some, such as the raising of Lazarus from the dead. The ones he does record are twin together with Jesus' teachings. Only in John does Jesus talk in such length about his identity. And that's why John is the only gospel writer who intentionally records the I am statements of Jesus Christ. When Jesus would say, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's invisible when you're looking at it in the English translations of Scripture. But when you look at it in ancient languages, it's very, very clear what Jesus is doing. That I am statement, or in Greek, ego eimi. It's, it's the words of God. In Scripture, you don't catch it in English. But when you read it in Greek, those two words stand out like a lighthouse. 
a carpenter from Nazareth, is using the ancient name of God that was revealed to Moses at the burning bush. I am that I am. And he was using it casually in reference to himself. Ego, I eat. It's the same translation. It's the same thing that God told Moses at the burning bush. I am that I am. Ego, I am. Ego, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. If you believe not that I am, if you believe that I am not, ego, I am, you shall die in your sins. Theologians and denominations that they make have missed those two simple words when it was translated into English. But the Pharisees caught the meaning of what Jesus was saying all too well. And in John chapter 8, that's exactly why they took stones up to, to stone Jesus. Because he had orchestrated, and they, they began to finally orchestrate the crucifixion of Jesus because of him telling them that I am. He would tell them, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I echo, I am. If you believe that not that I am, you shall die in your sins. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, you shall know that I am. He spoke his name. He spoke his rightful name at a well, and a nameless woman's life was changed forever. He spoke his name during a storm, and a disciple named Peter was empowered to walk on the waves. He spoke his name in the garden at midnight, and an entire battalion of soldiers fell before him. I am that I am, or simply I am. The original form spoken by Moses, or spoken to Moses by God himself. Carrying in this name the concepts of being eternal and self-existent. It is a being who is omnipotent, who is omnipresent and omniscient. It is God. I am that I am. Or what we call, what the scripture so eloquently says is Yahweh. It's the name that comes from four Consecutive consonants. Y H W H. In scripture, they were right only the consonants in Hebrew. And so in your early text, it would simply appear as Y H W H, the name of God. It's the vowels that they didn't ever put together. So to actually translate this name into English, we would say the eternal one or in English language, we would use the consonants J-H-V-H, or what we say as Jehovah. But Leviticus chapter 24 says, And he that blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death. And all the congregation shall certainly stone him as well the stranger as he that is born of the land. When he blasphemeth the name of the Lord, shall be put to death. The Jews are returning to the Babylonian captivity. And they're beginning to they had held the name Yahweh in such reverence that they stopped spelling it out altogether. So it appears as simply four consonants, Y-H-W-H. They outlawed the very use of anyone saying the name Yahweh. Common people were not even allowed to speak this name. Only the priests could use this name. And later, they would even get to a point where even the priests could not use it. Just the high priest could say that name. And then only on the day of atonement could the high priest use it. And so over time they begin to make these laws. Okay, you can use it. But now 
Now only the, the priest can use it. Now the priest can't use it. Now only the high priest. But now the high priest can use it on the day of atonement. So they kept putting such a reference on the name of Yahweh that nobody was allowed to use it. And so they would simply say Y-H-W-H. Finally, no one, no one, Simon, who was the last high priest that was ever permitted to use it when he died in 270 B.C., there was a total ban against saying the name Yahweh. And they begin to enforce this. So they begin to say words like Adonai as a substitute word for Yahweh. Adonai, it was a Hebrew word meaning Lord. It was used as a substitute for Yahweh. When it was read, the Jewish congregation would reply, Hashem, or the name. This eventually became the only way the Jews would refer to the proper name of God as simply Adonai. By the time that Jesus began his earthly ministry, the Jews had not heard the proper name of God, this Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. They had not heard that name in over 300 years. That's, that is why John's gospel is so striking. Because suddenly this carpenter from Nazareth is using the proper name of God. This name that they had not been allowed to say for over 300 years, he's using it to describe himself. But Jesus had a right to use the name of God because he was God. The Jewish religious leaders are outraged. They, they understood exactly who Jesus was claiming to be, even if some modern theologians do not understand what he was saying. Because if you go all the way back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 44, verse 6, when Yahweh would let Isaiah know, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Ego I am me. I am the first. Ego I am me. I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. I am the Lord, and that maketh the, all things, that stretches forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. I am, Ego I am me, the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God. Beside me, I am the Lord, and there is none else. Isaiah would write later in Isaiah 45, I am God, and there is none else. When you worship Jesus' name, you invoke all the power of every covenant name of God in the Old Testament. And when Jesus uses the name, I am, echo Iamia, he is not just using a noun and a pronoun or a pronoun and a verb. He is reaching back. To the very covenant form of God and to the greatest moment of revelation in all of our history. I am him. Echo I am me. I am God and there is none else. I am the first. I am the last. And besides me there is none. I am the life. I am the bread of life. I am everything you need. I am the true vine. Echo I am me. I am God. John chapter 8. Verse 28, then said Jesus unto them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am He. It's a talk about the crucifixion. He's literally saying that when you lift up the Son of Man, when He is lifted up before you, when He is placed on a cross and pulled up before you, then you shall know that I, Ego Iami, am He. Something specific is going to happen at the crucifixion that will prove my divinity. So watch when I am lifted up. That Hebrew code, which is obscured in English, was painfully obvious to the Jewish religious leaders every time Jesus spoke. The phrase, I am, Greek, ego, I am, appearing to us as just another pronoun and verb, identified Jesus to them as Yahweh. 
And this becomes exponentially more important at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Much uh, of the Old Testament was written in poetic literature. It was written in what some have, have called coded form. This made it easier to memorize. Uh, when you look at Psalm chapter 119, each of the 22 sections of Psalm 119 is labeled by one letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And each of the eight verses that precede that section starts with that letter. In Lamentations, each of the chapters is a poem with a similar acrostic pattern. It makes it easier for them to understand. To put it bluntly, Jewish scholars miss absolutely nothing. Not even the finest detail in regard to the scripture. It is absolutely astonishing that they could know so much about God's divine arrangement and completely miss God's divine atonement. One of the details that the Jews were absolutely fanatical about was the name of God. But when God came in flesh using his name, they crucified him. Leviticus chapter 21 verse 10 says, And he that is the high priest among his brethren, upon whose head the anointing oil was poured, and that is consecrated to put on the garment, shall not cover his head, nor rend his clothes. That's instructions for the high priest. The instructions are simple. You are not to uncover your head, nor rend your clothes. But Mark records in Mark chapter 14, but he held his peace, and he answered nothing, talking about Jesus again. The high priest asked him and said to him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the blood? And Jesus said, I am. Ego I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and said, What need any further witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. At that moment in Mark chapter 14, the high priesthood passes from one man simply and rests on the shoulder of Jesus Christ. That's why Hebrews chapter 4. Jennifer and I have been reading this over the last few nights, and there's so much in the book of Hebrews. But Hebrews chapter 4 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched by the spirit of our infirmities, but was at all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 9 would say, But Christ may come as a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and cast, but by his own blood he entered into, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and of the ashes and of a heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot of God, to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus has enraged this Sanhedrin simply by using the unutterable name of God. But this time, this time in Mark chapter 14, he didn't just utter it on a street corner, he uttered it in a court of law. So they rushed their prisoner to Pilate and they demand that he be crucified. Even though Pilate really can't find Anything. He seems to be pretty impressed with Jesus. They forced him to carry out the execution through political pressure. So Pilate becomes powerless to save his Nazarene, even though he wants Jesus to walk free. 
John records in John 19, and Pilate wrote a title, and he put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews to the place where Jesus was crucified and was nigh in the city. And it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not king of the Jews, but write that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. In this weird move, Pilate himself begins to write an inscription and has it placed on the cross above Jesus. He writes it in three languages. He writes it in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And it simply says, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Just another epitaph to the Greeks and Romans, but to many of the Jews. <clears throat> As they begin to gather and they begin to read the inscription over this Galilee, the chief priests suddenly see that we have a really bad problem here. And so they rush to Pilate insisting, don't write king of the Jews, but write, he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate would answer, what I have written, I have written. Literally what Pilate was saying is that I'm not going to change what I have written. I've written it, it's set in stone, I'm not changing. So what was the problem then that upset them so bad? What was it that upset these scholars so bad about this Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, that was written above his head? Because written above his head, in Hebrew were these words, Yeshua ha-Nazareth, But to the Jewish readers, the Bible code experts, and all that could see, there was a problem because the pattern with which these words were written was an acrostic version. And when it simply is... It condensed down the beginning of every word written above his name, spelled out Y-H-V-H for everyone to see. Yeshua ha-Nazareth of Melech Y-H-W-H. It's not a carpenter's blood that was being shed on the cross that day. It was not just another good man's blood that was running down that hill. It was Yahweh himself, Y-H-W-H. They did have a problem that day, and it was the fact that they had just crucified the Messiah. They had just crucified Jehovah, Adonai, our Lord, Yahweh himself. It was the blood of God that was being shed on the cross that day. They did have a problem. They had just crucified Yahweh. Acts chapter 20, verse 28 says, Take heed therefore to yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. To feed the church of God, which he had purchased with his own blood. Even after their enemy was dead, the chief priests are still nervous. In Matthew's account, they come to Pilate demanding Roman guards to secure the tomb until after the third day. Because if you remember, Jesus said, if you destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. And now they look at the sign and they see, hey, that's Yahweh. That's who he was claiming to be. On hanging on that cross. Now we've got to put a guard there. Just in case these disciples get some strange idea to remove the body. And show that Jesus had raised from the dead. Pilate says, if you want to go, use your own guards. And then once again, Pilate makes this puzzling remark. He says, go your way. Make it as sure as you can. 
It's strange. It almost sounds like the possibility that Pilate knew that it was a pointless effort on their part. It's as if he's saying, do your best to keep him in the grave. But if that man said he's going to rise from the dead, he's probably going to rise from the dead. John chapter 20 said, but Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, and seeing two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. In the tomb on Easter Sunday morning, Mary saw the most familiar silhouette in all of Judaism. Only in one other place do we find two angels facing each other over a flat slab. That place was simply the mercy seat set on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And between those angels dwelt the Shekinah presence of God. The body of Jesus was able to come out of the tomb because the body contained the Shekinah presence of God. Literally what Mary saw when she looked in were angels facing each other with an empty slab in the middle of them. It's the same picture that is there at the Ark of the Covenant. In Exodus chapter 25, when God begins to outline how to build it, he would say, and make one chair on the one end and one chair on the other end. Even of the mercy seat shall we make the cherubims one the two ends thereof. And the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall their faces of the cherubims be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark. And in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there... At the ark, I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. From between the two cherubims which are upon the ark are the testimony of all things which I give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. John's gospel culminates with this inspired revelation of doubting Thomas in chapter 20. When Thomas realized the significance of the mortal wounds in the body of a living man, he immediately put a title of respect. He would say, sir, master. And he would join that together with the absolute title of deity, exclaiming, my Lord and my God. In John chapter 20, verse 28, the New Testament apostolics never used that phrase to address anyone except Jesus. John chapter 20, verse 28, and Thomas answered and said unto him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me. He's not talking about his physical form. He's saying, because you have seen who I am. When you have seen ego I ami, blessed are they that have not seen me and yet have me. Thomas, there's a group of people who have never walked with me in the flesh, where they will walk with me in the spirit. And though they have never seen me, they will have the very same revelation that you have received. John chapter 20, verse 20 through 30, or verse 30 says, And many other signs did Jesus do in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. What a beautiful ending to the book of John. Thomas finally seeing, Echo Hayami, Jesus is the I am. Jesus is Yahweh. The problem is the book of John did not end in chapter 20. 
It didn't end there. You would think that's a pretty good fitting. John finally sees who Jesus is. He finally sees that who he has been walking with is the incarnate. It is Jesus. It is God robed in flesh. That would be a pretty fitting ending, except it didn't end in chapter 20. John Wright, chapter 21. It's merely a postscript adding the account of just one event. What can be so crucial to add after such a powerful conclusion as what Thomas had? John chapter 21, verse 1 says, After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And on this wise showed he, him, showed he himself. They were together, Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus, and Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other of the disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go fishing. They said unto him, We also go with thee. So they went forth and entered into a ship immediately. And that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. And then Jesus said unto them, Children, have you any meat? They answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and you shall find it. They cast their board now. They were not able to draw it from the multitude of the fishes. Verse 11 says, Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of great fishes, a hundred and fifty and three. And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. In Luke 5, verse 6, and when they had done this, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes, and their nets broke. It's obvious from the Gospels that fishing boats, nets, fishermen, fish, etc., are significant terms. They're significant types and shadows. Seven out of the twelve disciples are fishermen. Jesus is also the one who literally would say, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. But Jesus is not the first to use that term. In fact, Greek and Roman philosophers used this fishers of men to describe the work of a man who would seek to catch others by teaching and persuasion. And that is exactly what we are supposed to do. When we have been given a revelation of who Jesus is, our job is to follow him and make, become fishers of men, to catch men. John is not wasting ink in chapter 21. He is letting us know that after receiving such a powerful revelation, the disciples settled back into the status quo and decided to go fishing again. There's nothing wrong with fishing. I like fishing. I like fishing a lot. You should come to my garage and see how much I like fishing. Except now. They were not called to be fishermen. They were called to be fishers of men. What happens if most life-changing messages to ever intersect human history? What happens when that powerful message, the most powerful message to ever happen, gets buried beneath the status quo? What happens if the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't get preached to everyone? What happens if this saving message of who Jesus is does not get proclaimed to everyone? It almost happened. It almost happened by the disciples. Jesus dies, they have his revelation. Their first thing is just to go back to normal. Like it never happened. But this resurrected Jesus forced them out of their comfort zone. They've been fishing all night and they've caught absolutely nothing. They quit hoping and they had settled down to accept the status quo. But the methods that had always seemed adequate in the good old days were now coming up. And there's just nothing 
here. There's no fish here. And now Jesus would call to them from the shore, asking the question that irritates. It must have been irritating, right? They've been out there all that long and haven't caught a thing. Jesus comes to the shoreline and says, Are you catching anything? If you're a fisherman, you've been out there all night, and somebody asks you, Are you catching anything? That's pretty annoying. It's irritating. Is it working out there? Is what you're doing bringing anything in? Reluctantly, they would have to admit, no, it's really not working. Then comes this even more irritating comment from the shore. Perhaps you should change your method. Perhaps you should cast your nets on the other side of the boat. Don't change your net. Use the same net. Just cast it in a new place. That's got to be irritating. Jesus, we've been out here all night long. And you're talking about 15 foot difference. It doesn't matter if it's the left side or the right side of the boat. It really doesn't matter. Jesus simply would say, just change your method. Cast it on the other side of the boat. The greatest danger is always at the edge. It's always that place where the church begins to be culture. But on the edge, living in that place is the greatest opportunity for rescue and redemption that will ever be had. The New Testament church lived on the edge, never safe, always one step from disaster if God did not intervene. Jude would feel the tension when he would write in Jude chapter 1, and if some have compassion, making a difference. And others saved with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. The problem with living on the edge is that some people try to push you over, and some people try to pull you back. It's dangerous on the edge. It's dangerous for a church to live. On the edge. We cast to one side and don't catch anything. But Jesus simply says, Don't change what you're doing, change the method in which you're doing, <coughs> cast it to the other side. <coughs> it's living on the edge. It's different. It's right, as a church standpoint, it's right where the church meets culture. It's right where there's a fine line. There's absolutely no chance the church to impact our culture unless we get to the edge. The problem with living on the edge is that while some try to push you over, others will try to pull you back. It's dangerous on the edge because people try to push you over and some people actually fall over the edge. In changing the methods of the church, That's right. they go too far. That's right. In changing the approach to the gospel, they go too far and they fall over. But yet there's also an inherent danger in not changing your method at all. Because sometimes old methods don't catch new fish. Right. So there's this, there's this fine line of walking the edge, but yet not going too far. Walking an edge that you can present the gospel of Jesus Christ in a new way. That catches fish, but yet not walking so far that you fall overboard. And now you're swimming with the fish. It's a dangerous line to walk because some men will try to push you further than you want to go 
why some will try to bring you back into the comfort zone of where we've always been. But there's absolutely no chance that a church will ever impact the culture of our day unless we get to the edge. Almost all of the growth in any church comes from the edge because the trend is for Christians to disconnect from unsafe people. The longer we're around church, it's our tendency to no longer try to connect with anybody in the world. That's right. Well, you can't reach the world if we're not somehow connected to the world. I realize what the scripture says, be you not in the world. Be in the world, but not of the world. Right? I realize that's literally what Jesus was saying. But that's not a commandment to disconnect and isolate from the world because the church will never grow. The kingdom of God will never grow if we disconnect from the rest of the world. What he's talking about is live in the world. Live amongst the people. Just don't be impacted by the world. Don't talk like they talk. Don't go to the places they go. Don't be impacted by the way they live their life. But you have to be in the world in order to live. In fact, Jesus himself lived on the edge. Jesus, the friend of sinners. Paul, all things to all men. That's how they lived. They lived on the edge. They weren't isolationists. They engaged their culture. They got into their culture. Jesus literally called Zacchaeus out of a tree to go meet in his house. When nobody even liked Zacchaeus, he was a tax collector. I wouldn't like Zacchaeus. <laughs> But Jesus, this friend of sinners, went where nobody else could go. He went to culture. He went to the world to try and impact the world. Matthew chapter 11, verse 19 says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a winder, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. And that's what we miss sometimes, wisdom. Is justified by her children. Are we not all babes in Christ? Are we not all children of God? The wisdom and the wise thing is to get next to the world so that new babies and children can be born. Wisdom is justified by her children. We've got to be next to the world. We've got to be in the world in order to reach the world. It doesn't mean we need to adapt to their lifestyles. It doesn't mean that our doctrines change. It doesn't mean what we believe changes. It means the method in which we present them has to change in order to catch new fish. First Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22 says, To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I have made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. It's not enough to get to the end of chapter 20. And celebrate the revelation of who Jesus is. It's not enough to get there and just receive this revelation. We have to enter into chapter 21 and take the same net that we've been given in order to catch the fish and cast it into new waters. Missionary C.T. Studd said this Someone to live within the sound of church or chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within the yard of hell. That's the spirit of Jude. That's the spirit of Paul. That's the spirit of Jesus. That's the spirit of this New Testament church. To be in the fire so that by some point we might save 
some pulling them out of the fire. Hear me as we change our methods. I'm not talking about changing doctrines, not changing anything about what we believe. I'm talking about being able to present it in a new light. When we begin to do that, if we have that spirit about us to reach the world at whatever cost, there's going to be some that try to push us further than we want to go, while some try to bring us back and put us in this old familiar things. You should be knocking doors instead of on social media. Bring them back. We're not comfortable. Not everybody's comfortable living on the edge. Not every church is comfortable living on the edge. We don't change holiness. We don't change our standards. We don't change what we believe. We don't change a thing about who we are. We change the side of the boat that we're casting the net on. God wants us to give a God wants to give us a twofold miracle. He wants to get ready for new methods, new approaches, new people. Cast your nets on the other side. The first miracle will be that the nets will be overflowing with fish. But the second miracle is equally important. God is going to supernaturally strengthen the same nets we've always used so that they won't break. The second thing John reports in chapter 21 is Jesus' conversation with Peter. When he says, lovest thou me? And we don't have to guess why Jesus engaged in this conversation. John is not just wasting ink. In John chapter 21, verse 18, says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, and unto thee, when thou were young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whether thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest go not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said unto him, Follow me. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved, follow which also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayed thee? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, that is, that is thee. Follow thou me. Peter will very shortly find out that preaching and serving Jesus can result in persecution. And he will eventually find that serving Jesus can result in death. And he has the same objection that all of us have. Jesus, I'll do it for you if everyone else does it. What about him? Is he going to do it? And this really does have something to do with revelation of the word of God. Because if you're really giving yourself to God totally, <coughs> God, if you're really giving yourself to him, then everything about you belongs to him regardless of what anyone else does. If you truly believe that Jesus is God, if you truly have a revelation of the oneness of God, it doesn't matter what anyone else does. Your job is to become a fisher of men. It doesn't matter what somebody tries to bring you back into. Hey, quit preaching the gospel like that. Quit giving Bible studies all the time. Quit doing that. You're making me look bad by you serving Jesus like that. Don't quit. Don't give up. It doesn't matter what anybody else do, does. Our job, once we have received the revelation of ego, I am, the I am of God, 
is to cast our nets on the other side of the boat and with new methods and with new ways present the gospel where somehow we can pull new fish out of the boat. And I promise you, God is going to strengthen the gospel. God is going to strengthen the doctrines. They will not break in new waters. They will not break under the weight of new fish. You won't give up. You won't quit. God is able to strengthen those things if you will trust Him to cast your nets on the other in ancient Israel, near time of civil war, the Gileadites set up a blockade to catch the Israelites who were fleeing after this. The sentry simply asked each person who wanted to pass to say the word Shibboleth. The Ephraimites, who had no SH sound in their language, pronounced the word Shibboleth. And they were caught and they were slaughtered. Judges chapter 12, verse 5 says, And the Gileadites took the passage, passage of Jordan before the Ephraimites. And it was so that when Ephraimites, which were escaped, said, Let me go over, and they committed Gilead, said unto them, Art thou Ephraimite? And he said, Nay. Then said they unto him, Say now, Shibboleth. And he said, Shibboleth. For he could not frame to pronounce it right. Then they took him and slew him at the passages of Jordan. And there fell at the time of the Ephraimites 40 to 2,000. The word shibboleth literally means harvest. You know, everyone doesn't say the word harvest the same way. Everyone doesn't see harvest the same way. Different churches and different pastors have different ideas about how to get the job done. There's not a right way harvest. As long as there is actual harvest. Our job is to reach into the world and bring them out of the fire. Our job is to harvest. But we can't do it by compromising. Sure. We have to say it correctly. The doctrines have to be right. The message has to be right. What we give them has to be sound, scriptural, and God ordained. But the important thing is harvest. We can't have a civil war in our church based upon the methods that we all have. Some of you may not be comfortable teaching on Bible studies, but you can't condemn somebody that does. Some of you may not be comfortable locking doors, but you may. We're not going to have a civil war. Some of you may not be comfortable. Proclaiming the gospel at 2 o'clock on Sunday as opposed to 10 o'clock. Some of you may not be comfortable only going to one service. And that's not in the books, that's not in the makings. But there are things that you may not be comfortable with that I'm comfortable with. What's important is that we don't have a civil war over differences in methods. As long as the doctrine and the scripture is strengthened. As long as there is the harvest, as long as the church is growing, as long as the kingdom of God is advancing, as long as the doctrines are changing, as long as holiness is not let down, as long as standards are not let go of, as long as those things that have gotten us this far are not let go of, and the methods can change, as long as the doctrine of who we believe in stays the same. The Gospel of John was written to the church. 
meaning this is our gospel. This is about us. But after this powerful conclusion, John wanted us to remember two important things. One, go home and find some new waters to throw your dead in Revelation into. And watch God before you. Here in the next few weeks, we're going to roll out a kind of a new idea on outreach. It's not really a new idea. It should be what we're doing every day. We should be outreaching every day. We don't necessarily have an outreach department. We don't meet on Saturday mornings anymore and go to We've kind of grown by uh, organically, if you would, word of mouth. Or somebody saw a social media post and they came and visited life and stayed. Or they heard, you know, services are good, so we're going to go there. It's kind of the way that we've organically grown. The next few days, we're going to roll out an initiative. And the purpose of this is to put evangelism in the forefront of our minds. That when we're on our job, our job is to reach the lost. When we're in Walmart, our job is to reach the lost. When we're driving and an angry person cuts us off, our job is to reach the lost. So we have cop heads, I joke to say. Change the way we present the gospel. Don't change the gospel. The second thing John wanted us to take home. Stop worrying about what God is doing and what God is allowing or how he is blessing someone else. Just follow God with your whole heart and your whole mind, regardless of the consequences that come out of you. Just follow. Follow. And he will make you fishers of men. We all have a different idea of outreach. We all have a different idea of how it works. I'm going to tell you, there's not one step program. There's 150 different ways in this room to reach the lost the world. But we've got to tap into that. Because once we have seen Egoion, once we have seen the great island, it is now our duty and our responsibility to spread that to everyone that we know. Stay with me. You would want you to lift your hands this morning. Don't say, God, put somebody in my life today that I can reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, make me a vessel willing to spread your word to someone. What's your throat is not about social media. It's not about cool music. It's not about how many people we have. God, church growth is all about someone seeing you. Someone getting a revelation of who you are. Let me be a vessel that can teach someone about you. I'll let your voice to talk to me. Take me to sing. I'll put somebody in my heart. I'll put somebody in my way. This will be God and I can preach through your gospel. I can preach, Lord. I can preach.